You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello, and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 69 for Monday, the 26th of June, 2017. My guest today is Rachel Abbott, who spent most of her working life as the managing director of an interactive media company. After the company was sold in the year 2000, it took until November 2011 for Rachel to launch her first novel, Only the Innocent. The book was self-published in the UK through the Kindle Direct Publishing Programme on Amazon and reached the number one spot in the Kindle store just over three months later. In August 2015, Amazon confirmed that Rachel is the UK's best-selling independent author over the last five years. She's also listed at number 14 in the list of best-selling authors, both traditionally and independently published, over the same five-year period. I met Rachel in person at the excellent Newcastle Writing Conference, which is run by New Writing North. We chatted in the cafeteria, hence the occasional clashing and banging that you'll hear during the interview. And I started by asking her about her business background. I used to run an interactive media company. So interactive, when I first started it, it was a software company and it was literally five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which wow. most of your listeners have probably never even heard of. Well, I was a teacher and I used those floppy oh, disks. Great. <laughs> well, we actually used to write for education. That's how I started. Mm. So um, I was a systems analyst, um, although working more as a programmer than an analyst. And I was at that time married to a teacher. So this is, we're going back now to 1981, so a long time ago. And um, I, he used to bring home the computer from school, and it was a massive thing called a 380Z, yes. which was a huge black machine. And he used to bring this machine home and uh, show me the software that was on there. And most of it was just really shocking. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and so we decided that we would start um, to... He would put the educational input into it. And I would then do all the programming. So we started up a business, just me in the front bedroom. So I'm quite used to this starting off in the front bedroom game. Uh, that's why I'm getting <laughs> yes. you to talk about this. <laughs> yes. So started off in the front bedroom. And then, of course, then you find that you're doing marketing, so you've no time to do programming. So then you take on a programmer. But then you've got to earn more money because you're taking on more people. And so it, so it goes on and on and on. And so in the end, um, it became quite a successful business with about 100 staff. And we changed from five and a quarter inch discs. The first computer that I bought, I had to borrow the money off my dad. So this was 1980 and it was three and a half thousand pounds and it had a 56K, that's kilobytes of memory. And a lot of people won't even know what a K is anymore because nothing is just one K, is it? No. 56K of memory and it was three and a half thousand pounds. And it was black and white, no colour. So, um, yeah, so that was quite a journey. and so it then it then developed from there to uh, producing much more web-based and CD-ROM became sort of further online and then all web-based stuff. And uh, finally, I sold the company in 2000, um, but I carried on working for the company that bought my business for five years after that because it was I still enjoyed it. The reason I wanted you to talk about that was because I think it's important to understand that you were already a successful entrepreneur and you'd already started a business in your bedroom and and you'd already scaled a business 
yes. up before you became a writer. That's true. Uh, so so you're, you were a bit of an old hand at this already when you came to it, in many respects. <laughs> well, it's true, but when I started to write, I didn't write with any intention ever of getting published. I wrote because um, when I did finally um, leave the company that, that I'd sold, I went to live in Italy, which all sounds, everybody thinks, oh God, that's the dream. And <laughs> it is. It's lovely. I still love it. In fact, I'm going there tomorrow. Um, but the reality is that in central Italy, the winters can be quite extreme. And I was snowed in one week. And I'd had an idea for a book in my head for years. Um, I just Because I'd seen something on the television about a woman murderer. And there aren't that many women who commit murder. Yeah. And so this woman looked really normal and ordinary. She didn't look sort of like a thug or somebody who was in any way, shape or form, what you would expect a murderer to look like if you had a preconceived idea. And so I thought, well, what set of circumstances could be so bad that a woman would have no choice but to murder a man? And that became a bit of an obsession. So I used to drive to work plotting these murders in my head. <laughs> so, so I'd had this idea for quite a long time. And then we got snowed in um, one week. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go and sit down and write that book. And I wrote it with absolutely no plans of doing anything with it at all. It was family, really, who persuaded me, who said, you've got to try and get this published. You've got to try and get this published. And I was very half-hearted about it because I thought, no, I... I'm pleased with it, but I'm sure nobody else is going to like it. But hang on a minute. You said I just sat down and wrote a book. Yeah. And, as, and anybody who's trying to write a book will know that you don't just sit down and write a book. It takes weeks, months, for some people, even years. Absolutely. And it took years from the first version of that book to the version that ultimately was published. The first version only took me about nine weeks because... I'd had the idea in my head. I'd worked out every single plot point. So the very first thing I did, because I've got a programming and systems analyst background, um, I actually drew a flowchart. Mm -hmm. I still do draw flowcharts. So I knew um, what happened to every single person, how the, the timings went, because although right at the beginning it's very clear that the murder is a woman, that is in the very, very first chapter, so I'm not giving any secrets away there. Um, I wanted her to have a reasonable chance of getting away with it. So the way she did it and the alibis and the and the way that we were supposed to think it couldn't possibly have been her had to be very carefully worked out. And because of my background, because of my analytical background, I really, really enjoyed that. The thing that really scuppered it was she has to catch a train and this particular train used to come into... Uh, Waterloo Station and then it's changed to St Pancras yeah. right at the year that this book was supposed to start so I had to change all the dates because I like to be very very specific and very accurate in any sort of content so yes the first version I wrote in nine weeks and then I started all the rewrites and what was writing for you then was it pen it can't be pen and paper no, you're making no, software well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> computer freak I'm a computer freak yes what were you using then to write then I, I just used oh, I didn't actually use the word processing um, software I used a piece of software oh, I can't remember what it was called um, it, I now use Scrivener but back then I used something else which had a flow charting feature in it. Oh, right. So you weren't which, using uh, Word, which no. would have been around then, but Word, in, in a format. Rawer. Yes, yes. Yeah. in a format it was there. But I've always used writing software because I like to be able to plot the whole thing in, in rough form so that it's got some shape to it. And I also need to be able to track individual elements of the story because my plots are quite complicated with lots of different strands. 
So I need to be able to check the mobile phone that I mentioned in chapter two that's gone missing. Where does it turn up? Yes. And has it actually got a thread that I can follow? Yes. Or is it some, somehow randomly going to turn up somewhere else without anybody knowing how it's got there? Yes. So I, I can't remember what it was from, I think... Oh, I can't remember. I really can't remember what it was called, which is a bit sad because it was very good. But you were into the tech fr- uh, from, 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 from the, the word go. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we would we would have expected that, of <laughs> yeah. course, wouldn't we? Yeah. So you wrote the book, and it and it just sat there for a little while. And yeah. a lot of authors tell me that the first book they ever wrote, they say it was always rubbish. And I said, well, well why was it rubbish? Because you know you're literate, you could write. Why why was it rubbish? Did you feel the same way about yours, or did you feel like you pretty well got it on a first take? I didn't think I'd got it. Um, I didn't really understand that the proper process of writing, and I've learned so much. To me, every single new book is another learning, a new, new aspect of learning. I'm all the time trying to improve. And um, when I look at the first book now, I still think that the story works really well, but I think that some of the ways in which I wrote the story could have been a lot better. Um, so, for example, I didn't know what head hopping was. So, I didn't know that you can't write things from one person's point of view for one sentence and then the next sentence is from somebody else's. I had never understood that at all. I didn't really understand then that adverbs were a bit, um, you shouldn't use well, them. Well, Stephen really. King's banned them now, hasn't yeah. he? So, no, nobody's allowed to use an no, adverb. No, that's right. He's not too keen on adjectives either, is he? But I think that. Um, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't realised that, and I didn't. I don't think I really got that until my second book, when I read a book on self-editing, because I actually didn't know what editing was mm. either. I thought that editing, somebody took your book from a publisher's and they rewrote bits that weren't very good, and then said, "Is this okay?" I didn't realise that what they do is write on it. This bit slows me down, or you need to put more emphasis on this aspect of this person's character, and then you have to work it out. I thought it was a mixture between proofreading and rewriting bits that were rubbish. So that was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, But um, I didn't get my first book professionally edited. I um, launched it. In the end, I uploaded it to the Kindle um, because I just thought, well, why not really? It was kind of a, oh, have a go at this. It was, honestly, I really wasn't... As I mean, I'm now obsessed, but then I was very much, oh, well, have a go at this. And... um, so I didn't know any of this and it was only when I then got an agent so I got an agent after I'd published Only the Innocent because it, after I'd implemented my marketing plan which I'm sure you'll want to talk about at some stage <laughs> after I'd implemented my marketing plan I, I got to number one and stayed on the top of the charts for four weeks and so I started to get a lot of interest or some interest from agents and there was one agent that was recommended to me who hadn't contacted me but I contacted her because somebody said she was really good and she read my book and I spoke to her and I said, so what did you think? And she said, well, I thought it was good, but you can do so much better than that. <laughs> and and well, I loved her instantly because everybody mm. else was saying, oh, it's marvellous, it's wonderful. Mm. And she was just so honest with me. Mm. You can do better than that. And then she took it off me, gave it to an editor and said, just tell her what she needs to do to put it right. Mm-hmm. I'd already sold 100,000 copies by then. Yeah, yeah, so so it wasn't that wrong, was it? (laughs) I think the story, as I say, I think the story was okay. But I just think that that when I saw what an editor could do, it was it was a revelation, mm. a revelation. Then that's part of the journey, isn't it? Yes. That you, you, you have to step out in the first instance to write the darn book. Yes. And then you learn the rest, really, as you go, Absolutely. As you go along. Absolutely, yes. yes. Okay, now I'm sure, I was interviewing Harry Bingham, and I'm sure oh, he yeah. said to me, 
that you went to the Festival of Writing in York in your early career. Is that right? I didn't go to the festival. What I did was, on the Writer's Workshop website, there is an option to submit your book um, to them, and I think it was £500. Yes. And then somebody who is an author... Um, a published author will read your book and tell you what you need to do to improve it. So I did do that, yes. But it, it's so heartening for people at my stage of writing to hear that people like you, you know, went through the same oh, sorts yeah. of things Definitely. that we did to improve your your craft. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think it's a it's a constant improvement. Hopefully, um, just thinking about things from slightly different perspectives. So each time. I love editing. I know some people hate it, but when I get the notes back from the editor, I get really excited because even though they, they might write... I mean, once I actually got yuck written next to a paragraph, which I thought was a bit rich, actually. <laughs> it's going a bit far. It's a bit like, a bit like school, isn't it, <laughs> yeah. really? It's, it's a, bit a bit strong. Yes. <laughs> but... Um, I really love it when they when they say things like, "I think you need to reword this because it's making this person sound um, quite unpleasant, and you don't really want to do that or whatever." And I think, "Oh, they're absolutely right. They're mm. right." And you change it, and suddenly it transforms the paragraph. So just I just love that stage, really do, and. Um, I love it from when I start doing the self-editing until I actually sent it off to the editor. So all of that. And each time you learn something new because then you realise something that you've perhaps not been doing as well as you could do and how you can improve upon things. The other thing um, on this interview with Joanna Penn that I was listening to from four or five years ago, um, you were explaining that when you wrote that first book, I think you had just a handful of followers on Twitter. Nine. Nine, was it? It was nine. Nine. You know, which is going to be so reassuring to many yeah. people hearing this. Because I, I think the perception often is, is that, and, and I've said this to many of the, the, the very successful authors that I've spoken to, that you come out of nowhere, and that so, so magically you did some work and all of a sudden you're all over the place. And actually there's a lot of hard work goes in to get you to that stage. I don't Huge. think people dwell enough on, on actually the work that you have to do you see the success but not the work I know and I quite often um, get phone calls from people who were I mean I live on Alderney um, in the Channel Islands and um, I get phone calls from people saying can they have a chat to me about this or occasionally sometimes it's people who live on the island who who want to talk to me and say what they want to do and when I tell them how much work is involved they sort of look at me in bemusement as if to say, why on earth would you want to waste your time doing that? Mm. Because it is, I mean, unless you unless you focus on the marketing, it's not going to happen. If people don't know your book is out there, mm. they're not going to be able to buy it. And of course you've done this once already because you created educational software and you had to get it out there. Yes. It's just another product like, like, like a book in many respects. It was, that was slightly different because with the educational software we, we tended to be commissioned to okay. doing those things mm. but we still had to sell ourselves yes. to win the commission. Yes. So we still had to work out, interestingly enough we used to go to a lot of book fairs mm. because we used to talk to the publishers of educational books and ask them would they like to have whatever the book was um, made into a piece of educational software and because there was a big boom in that at that particular time um, we got that's how we got most of our commissions and we got big government commissions as well where we had to pitch so you still have to you're still selling you're selling yourself rather than a product yes yeah with the book then uh, when people were telling you that you need to get this published you popped it on Amazon did you just leave it there or did you give it some impetus did you do some things yourself I didn't put it on Amazon to start off with. The very first thing I did was I did actually write to about, I think it was probably six different 
agents mm. because I thought that was uh, that was the only way I knew you could do it. Um, and I only did six because the stage of my life that I was at, I didn't know how well I would handle rejection, and I knew that rejection was inevitable <laughs> because it always is, mm. you know. So. So I wrote about six, and two of them were really nice to me. One of them, um, two of them read the whole book. So normally you submit 30 pages or whatever, the first three chapters, something like that. And two of them requested the full book, which was a good sign. And then they both read it independently, obviously, and both came back to me to say that they didn't think it was what publishers were looking for at that particular time. Because I suppose publishers, like any other organisation, have got a list of the things that they think are the the up-and-coming areas, the areas that they can sell, the areas they can get the bookshops interested yes. in. And because it, it was kind of almost cross-genre, because although it's a thriller and it's a psychological thriller, and it's a bit sort of domestic as well, um, domestic noir, as it's commonly known now, wasn't actually that big at that time. Um, but also there was kind of a family saga behind it, so it was crossing over into too many genres. So they didn't think that it would sell. One of them wanted me to rewrite it based in Italy, which she said that would be much easier to sell to a publisher, but I didn't really want to do that because does that mean that all the books from then on had to be written based in Italy? So, And it was based in London and Oxford, so I didn't see how that was going to work. Um, Never heard one like that before. No, that really is yeah, quite unique. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I'm not, I can't be doing with this really. So I literally put it on what I would class as a virtual shelf for about six months after that little foray into and then I did look at Kindle but initially on the Kindle you had you could only really do it if you lived in America because you had to have a US bank account mm. and a US tax code so I thought oh well, I'm not bothering with that and then quite literally I was just rooting around on the internet as you do and I came across people um, actually uploading for the Kindle in the UK and um I actually literally said, my words were, do you know, I think I'll just have a go at this. <laughs> and that was it. So when I did upload it, I didn't do anything. Well, that's not quite true. I emailed every single person that I knew and said, would you please buy my book? It's one ninety nine. If you think that it's too much to buy for one ninety nine, I will give you the money back. Um, but please buy it anyway. The daft thing was, most of these people didn't have Kindles. Yes, but they course, bought it yeah. anyway because mm. I think at that time you could do that I think and you know they'd download it for their computers or something um, and so I, I got a bit of a head of steam there I think about 50 people bought it in the first week which got it to be slightly noticed mm -hmm. but then of course that, that didn't continue so it immediately became unnoticeable again and that's when I think it was Christmas Day 2011 it sold six copies and I thought oh wow this is fantastic so, um, and then I thought, well, you're being a bit pathetic. You know, why aren't you doing more? And that's when I decided I needed a marketing plan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I've heard a lot about this marketing plan. And um, I remember listening to an interview with you thinking, oh, there's a lot of work in this. There is a lot of work involved in this. And, you know, you really, you really deserve your breakthrough <laughs> because you really put the hours in uh, and showed the commitment with it. So give us a, a brief overview of this, this marketing plan. It's pretty substantial, wasn't it? It was 27 pages long, the first mm. one. Um, the reality is that um, anything that was in that marketing plan now is probably, in the detail, is not relevant 
um, anymore because things have changed so much. So I used to do quite a lot of chatting on forums and things, yes. and and I think that the payback from that now is much much lower than it was, mm. mainly because on the forums where you're allowed to post about your own books, yes. most people just go on and um, and they post something about their own book, and um, and then they disappear and go off and post the same thing on. 10 other forums so nobody goes on and chats in the same way in the forums that I used to go on so that didn't really uh, that wouldn't work now but the principles are exactly the same and I started with the principle that what I was doing was I was kind of rooting around on the internet looking at ideas for how to market my book and I was thinking oh that's a good idea oh that's a good idea so there was no strategy there was nothing to actually focus on so there is, there's one marketing principle um, that has been around for years and years and years and there's now all kinds of derivatives of it and all sorts of improvements of it but it's um, the, the acronym for it is I, well I always say AIDA but it could be AIDA A-I-D-A yes. and it stands for Awareness, Interest, Desire and Action and the very first thing you have to do is to work out how to make people aware of your book so that was what I started to look at. How can I get people to know about my book? What can I do to get people so that they've actually seen the cover in as many places as possible? And so um, I started off um, contacting every single blogger that I could find who had reviewed books similar to mine or said that they would review books. Um, and, and then I created a very um, uh, professional what they now call an AI sheet, so it's an information sheet. So um, it's basically I did it in full colour, and I got the cover on it, and I've got all the information about the book, how many words, how many pages, what the reviews were like up to that point, all of this stuff. Sent it to reviewers and said, "Would you like to review my book?" And I got a reasonable response. I think it's probably slightly more difficult now, but there are ways of of encouraging that. And I said, you know, if you don't want to, um, if you don't want to review my book, I could do an interview. I could do a uh, an article for you people frequently say to me yes but blogs don't sell books for you and they don't sell books for you what they do is they raise the awareness of your book and it's commonly understood that you actually have somebody has to see your book cover seven times yes. before they recognize it and so how are they going to do that if it's hidden in the depths of Amazon at number 3,231,000 or something they're not so how can you do that? How can you actually make it more visible? Um, and so awareness was everything. So bloggers, Twitter, I started to build up my Twitter followers, um, and, but for, with readers, not with, um, I didn't in any way, shape or form, want to just buy one of those lists because they're useless. Um, built up Facebook, tried to build up my blog, tried to develop interesting content for my blog, and then publicise that as much as I could. So it was all about awareness, and that's really what starts it. And that's very interesting because you are constantly, it seems, on the road, and you don't live just up the road. You live mm. on an island, miles, miles away, yeah. which I assume involves quite a bit of hassle with planes, boats, and things like that, doesn't oh, it? It certainly, yes, because Alderney is a beautiful, beautiful small island. It's only three and a half miles by a mile and a half, mm. only 2,000 people, but we do have an airport. So some of the Channel Islands don't have airports, so it has to be boats. But, um, yeah, we do have an airport, but 
if there's going to be fog anywhere, it's going to be on Alderney. <laughs> so we quite often get cancellations for flights because of the fog or because of the wind or because the pilot's sick or because the plane's sick. So it can be a bit of a nightmare. And are these tiny planes or are they, are yeah. they proper? Yeah, so you get, yeah. you need to be good in the air, yeah. don't you? <laughs> they, 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 uh, they seat 14, I think. Although the newer ones, I think, seat a few more now. Um, but also, um, I actually... There's a club plane, so you can subscribe to a club. And if you're part of this club, then you can actually get a pilot to take you various places. So so sometimes that's the more mm. economical and the more sensible way of doing things. So it's not easy for you to just come and to Newcastle like no. this and to do a talking conference. And, and frankly, you don't need to now because you've reached that level of success. So presumably you're adhering to your own principle that you need to get eyeballs on your book still is this why you do it or just it's enjoy not, it massively it's, well it's not actually about the book so much now so I think it, the stage has come now where I don't go to these things to sell a particular book I go to meet the readers because mm. I've got um, I've got a lot of readers who are very um, they're very faithful to me and they're very supportive and they write fantastic stuff on Facebook and I just think it's so nice to be able to get out and to see them and also to be introduced to new readers who haven't maybe read my books yet but it's not so much now about specific books it's more about a general um, awareness that, that, that I'm around and I write books really. With your first book when did you get that moment when you thought it, it, it's going this is I didn't expect this this is going yeah well that was it started to sell reasonably well and then um suddenly it started to shoot up the charts and I can remember um quite clearly putting posting something in one of these forums that I used to be involved in and uh, saying I can't understand what's going on with my book and somebody sent me a link to a reader's forum which obviously as an author you're not allowed to post on you you can but only as you as a reader not as a, a writer and she said you just want to look at this and basically there were loads of people talking about it on this forum it was an Amazon forum and people saying you've got to read it you've got to read it and it just worked it just absolutely worked and um and it, that was just, I'd raised the awareness. Other people were generating the interest and the, the desire to buy. And so, and because it was an Amazon forum, actually, the, the final bit of the, the ADA or AIDA, whichever you want to call it, action was very straightforward because they could just click on the link from the forum page and they were there and they could buy it. So the whole process was very smooth and I was just staggered that this was going on. I've just read a, a I've just completed a really interesting book on, about luck, about. Uh, whether you can control luck and do you view it as luck that that happened or do you view it as you creating your luck combination so I think there has to be an element of luck I'm very lucky in that the graphics designer who did my jacket he's somebody who um, used to work for me uh, when I ran my company he's now the marketing and commercial director of the PLC that bought my company so big cheese now mm. but he still insists on doing my covers for Great. me bless his heart and and I think that you know because it was a good cover and the title Only the Innocent was um, a last minute decision because it was going to be called something else which was a really rubbish title <laughs> too embarrassing to tell really? you really oh, go on go on give us an exclusive <laughs> okay. it was going to be called The Only Option which I think is really a bit it's not terrible it just doesn't roll off the tongue no, as well does it's it not, it's not really very intriguing mm. is it um, and two days before my book came out another book came out with that name and I didn't think you could call I didn't think you could call the book the same name as somebody else mm. used and so I just 
wrote down all these columns of words and came up with only the innocent, which I thought was a bit out there, a bit off the wall, but it, it, it kind of worked. So, so that was good. So that was lucky that those things happened. I think I was lucky now in retrospect that I did it when I did, because then there were only two million books on Kindle and now there's about five million. <laughs> no competition. No. <laughs> so, um, so I think I was quite lucky in that respect. And obviously I was lucky that I knew enough about marketing to to be able to focus my marketing. I think, I don't actually think that there was much luck involved in driving the book up the charts. That was sheer hard work. I yes. worked 14 hours a day, seven days a week for three months and ate very little other than chocolate biscuits, put on two stone, <laughs> which I've still got, thank you. And um, I, I, it was just, it was just full on, but I got the bit between my teeth then and I was determined. And, and reading about you, as, as I do, because you're, you're, you're all over the place in, in magazines and things these days, I'm always very interested to read about it, but it, it, it strikes me that, well, you, you, you tell me, are you an entrepreneur or an author? Because it strikes me that you're an entrepreneur who happens to write. Oh, I'd like to think that I'm a writer who happens to have some entrepreneurial <laughs> uh, sort of knowledge and skills. But it was the entrepreneurial skills that gave you the impetus in the first place, wasn't it? That was well, to, to start to market it, but that wasn't what made me want to write it. What no. I wrote, and I still write, because I love it. So the writing is the bit that now I really enjoy. I actually... I really don't enjoy so much the marketing. Mm. I love the coming out and meeting people, which yes. is why I'm doing more of this. I love doing that. Um, I love doing things like this. I love doing radio interviews, and, and that's all great fun. Um, but actually sitting down and designing adverts and stuff like that, I actually do now have people who work for me to help with so you've that. So become, you've become a writer, have you, via entrepreneur? Oh, well, I wrote first. <laughs> I wrote, so I wrote first and then marketed that mm. book. Um, and I suppose because it did well, I had already started the second book. So it wasn't as if I only wrote another one because that one had done well, but it gave me the confidence to write mm. the next one. And it's writing that I love. If you could say to me, okay you've got to do one thing today for eight hours is it going to be entrepreneurial stuff or is it going to be writing there's no contest right great. writing all the time yeah okay good so you're a writer yes i hope so <laughs> it has great entrepreneurial skills <laughs> yeah, that's the way i'd like to look at it yeah <laughs> now that second book then the first book had been with you for a long time yes so in many respects that's a bit easier because you've been churning yeah. that over for years and years the next book yes where did that one come from well that one actually was wasn't going to be the same kind of book at all so it wasn't going to be in any way um, a thriller it was it was going to be about relationships and um, and there was no Tom Douglas in it so for those people who haven't read my books Tom Douglas is the policeman who runs through all the books the books aren't about him they're not police procedurals they're about the victims and the perpetrators of the crime but if you have a crime it's handy to have a policeman so the focus is more on the victims and the perpetrators but the readers do quite like love Tom Douglas um, so I'd written, I'd started to write the second one and there was no Tom Douglas in it. There was no, nobody was going to be killed or anything. Um, it was about relationships. Um, but then when it did so well and I got an agent, she said, well, your readers are asking for more Tom Douglas. And so he became, he was in it, but he was in it as the next door neighbour of the person to whom all this stuff was happening. 
Um, and so he wasn't in it as a policeman. He was taking a sabbatical. So <laughs> I squeezed him in by him having a sabbatical. And he was a huge help in finding out. that I then had to introduce the thriller aspect. But I still, it's still very heavily relationship-based and the lies that people tell. So it's a book about... Um, the, the, the idea was always the same, that it was going to be a book about people telling small lies um, because they're trying to save themselves. Mm. But the cumulative impact of all these small lies by all these people was quite dramatic because something has happened to somebody but nobody actually um, knows who did it and they can't find out because everybody's telling a little lie and it's only when it all blows open that we find out who did it so so that had been the idea of that had been in my head because it was based originally around a dinner party and it reminded me of a dinner party I'd been to where I knew one or two people were telling fibs I was going to say so do you think then a lot of people tell a lot of lies and it gets us all into a lot of trouble. Yes. Is that, that, is think, that your perception well, of my, humanity? I, there are a lot of people tell unnecessary lies, but they, they tell lies to save themselves, embarrassment, because, you know, should they have been where they were at that particular time? Mm. And if they weren't there, if they were there, why? And that kind of thing. You don't do procedurals either. No, is that, not is that, at all. That's not at all. a conscious Absolutely. decision not to do that. Absolutely mm. conscious decision, yes. I had no intention of them being about the police at all. Um, I didn't really want... The the reason why Tom Douglas became so popular, I think, in the first book was because my books tend to be about dilemmas. So in the first book, what set of circumstances could be so bad that a woman would have no choice but to murder a man? But she, she wasn't the only one with the dilemma. Tom himself had a dilemma because he knew when he found... when he realised who had actually committed this murder, he felt that the reason the murder had been committed was absolutely valid and by actually taking this woman to court and to ar- by arresting her the impact on so many people would be massive and it was all because this guy in his head deserved to die so he's then faced with a dilemma do I arrest her or do I let her go free and obviously his training as a policeman is very clear but his his human nature mm. was pulling in the other way so he quite often gets little bits of dilemmas but there have to be procedural aspects because obviously if you go into a crime scene unlike the television where the police seem to trample all over every little bit of evidence there is you know the fact that there's an approach path and that people are signed into and out of crime scenes so that if any DNA is deposited mm. they know where it's come from and all that kind of stuff I had to, I had to get that right but that's not the main focus at all. It's definitely not police procedural. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, because a lot of people love that stuff, don't they? And it's very, yeah. very detailed. And yeah. Almost created a rod for your own back, I think, because Absolutely. you've got to get it right, haven't you? If yeah. You, if you go down that path. Yeah. When you um, write, what is a writing day like for you? You, you do 14-hour marketing days, yes. but presumably you can't sustain a 14-hour writing no, day. No, I can't. It's really strange because people often say to me, somebody said to me the other day, I'd been out somewhere, I said, look, I need to go back, I've got another 1,500 words I need to write today. And she looked at me, she said, well, that's only going to take you about 10 minutes. <laughs> because I can type at 80 words a minute. Well, okay, so that's 800 words, but... Um, I think that people don't appreciate the amount of actual thought that has to go into it. So yes, physically, I could type the whole thing in a very short space of time. But it's the thinking process. And I think that, um, for me, about 3,000 words a day is about the tops. There's been the odd day when I've managed 5,000. But because the intensity of thought 
maybe I'm just too old for this intensity of thought, <laughs> but this intensity of thought, you know, I'm, I get very, very focused on a few chapters where I know what the characters are doing, and then I need some thinking time to mm. be sure that what's going to happen in the next few chapters is still at the same kind of level. So I would probably not write for more than about four or five hours a day, but then there's all the other stuff, you know, all the emails and all the other kind mm. of stuff. Even if I'm not doing marketing, there's always plenty more to do. So I do tend to write, I write seven days a week, and I try, my target is 2,000 words a day. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but I try to keep that as a kind of rolling average, and that's for the first pass of the book, but then when mm. you go back to starting the edit, the first the first edit, my first edit, that takes how long, however long it takes, and then the second edit, then the third edit, yes. and then it goes to the editor, yes. and then when it comes back, you edit it all again, and then finally, I always read the whole thing out loud, at least once, if not twice, mm. and I am actually going to start recording it now when I read it. I haven't done that in the past, but when I listen to the Audible, the, the audio um, versions I often think that there are some bits that I've probably made more difficult for the narrator mm -hmm. than they need to be mm. so um, I'm going to start doing that as well I think when you read it out loud you pick up so many little things you think I've, I've just read that word out it doesn't seem five minutes since I said that before yes. and so you go and yes. you know it really helps with that what are your uh, errors then that you make? You said you were saying about repeating words, for instance, which is a terrible I, habit I have. What, what are your the little things that annoy you about your writing that you, you get wrong and you have to put right? I get annoyed with myself. Well, I never do head hopping. I really never. I'm, that just never happens. I know always each scene within a chapter whose point of view it is, and I don't ever lose that. Um, so that's. I think I've kind of overcome that now. I get cross with myself when I'm. Um, telling people things rather than showing them mm -hmm. so I think the classic example that I always keep in my head was when I was writing actually the second book and I put something like oh she turned round angrily and I read it and I thought what and so it then changed to she slammed the pans down on the on the worktop and spun round or something like that yes. you know so you can see that she's angry without actually saying the word and so I get annoyed with myself sometimes when I'm reading back through the first edits and I think, well, that was a bit lazy, you know, just be a bit, you know, because I'm very, I'm very clear about characters. I always know who my characters are, what their personality is, what they look like in massive detail. But then sometimes I find things like I've got in this book I'm writing at the moment, two barristers in court and... Um, they both got glasses. I thought, what have you done that for? Mm. You know, so they, it's, I mean, it's not unfeasible, mm. but it means for the reader, they're quite difficult to differentiate. Yes. So it's giving the reader enough to, so stuff like that. But I think that it's when I um, get, as my editor or my agent calls it, a bit telly. And so I, that really annoys me when I do that. With your books, um, you've got the digital books and you've had amazing success with digital books. I, I, there's so many little accolades that uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great list now, isn't it? It's, it's an amazing yeah. list of accolades. But um, with the um, paperback books, all authors like to see their books in, in, yes. in bookstores. Yes. How, how have you gone about that? So um, to start off with, I used to do print-on-demand books. Is that um, through CreateSpace or Ingram? I started with CreateSpace, yeah. but I now use Ingram. Yes. Um, so I started that way, and, and it's, there's a lot to be said for it. I'm not criticising it at all. What I wanted, though, for my books is I wanted them to look as if they were exactly the same calibre 
as the books that come from a, a traditional publisher. So we, once, when I got to Stranger Child, which was my fourth book, I decided to pay to have them um, professionally printed and, um, you know, with uh, Spot UV and embossing and stuff like that yeah, on the titles very nice. and things yeah. like that. So I've done that for the last three books. Um, and the, the company that I do it with, they do, they do have a sales force. They don't, but they pay for a sales force or, or the sales force takes, obviously, returns on any books they sell. So, um, so I've started doing that. And, and we've, I've been in quite a few. I mean, the bookshops can get my books very easily because I go off on tour and do them. So yes. they're in the Waterstones hub. Yes. So Waterstones can easily, if they've not got them in the store, people can order them very easily from any bookstore now which I think is really important. Um, so they find them very easy to get my books. And I've been in WH Smith's Travel. I went in there and saw Stranger Child, so rearranged the shelves slightly, you know. <laughs> That's exciting, yeah. Yeah, and I've, quite a few friends have sent me photographs of them yes. when they've found them in bookshops. So, yeah, I mean, it's great. But I don't think it will ever... Well, not for the foreseeable future. I, I can't say ever. I'm not sure that's true. But in the foreseeable future, I can't see that self-published authors are likely to get their books on the front table at Waterstones. Yes. Which is a great disappointment because that's where I'd love to be. And so, I need to ask you the question. If somebody traditional came along and said, we'll buy up everything and we'll handle the rights and film deals and all of this, would you take that now? So... Big pause, you're going to have to cut <laughs> out here. <laughs> no, I'm, going to leave, I'm going to leave it in because big pauses are telling. <laughs> um, so there have been um, conversations, approaches from publishers um, at all stages, really, um, different approaches. And I would never say never because mm. I have a huge amount of respect for publishers. I think they do a brilliant job. Um, and so I certainly would never say never. I probably, I'm not sure that anybody would want to buy the backlist now because it sold so many copies. I'm not sure that they would actually benefit from that. But certainly, you know, it's not somewhere that I would say, oh, no, I'd never go, I'd never be traditionally published. There are things that would I would find difficult. I'd find it difficult um, not to be in control now because yes. I've been in control for so long. But on the other hand, it would be lovely to just say, nope, somebody else's problem now, not mine. Yes. Um, as long as they were selling the books, I wouldn't mm. care. But I already sell the foreign because I've got an agent. The foreign rights, um, my books are in twenty different languages already. Mm. So the, the foreign rights team at my agents do a great job. And there's been a couple of books have been optioned for TV, but options for TV, everybody's got options for TV. They're, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to go anywhere. No, no, no. So, they sit in development hell for years, can't yes, they? Yes, so, yes. Unfortunately, yes. So, uh, so I'm very, very happy that, that all of that's covered. Um, but um, in terms of whether or not I'd go with a traditional publisher, I don't think they'd want the backlist. I might be completely wrong, but in terms of future books, there's absolutely no reason why I wouldn't consider it if, if it felt like the right thing at the right time. How often do you, do you stop and, and gasp at the success um, th that you've had, or do you just treat it as another day in the office? Well, nobody's more surprised than I am. But it's a really weird thing. You may know this and you may not know this, but Rachel Abbott is not my real I name. I do know that, yes. I thought you probably did. Yeah. So <laughs> I adopted the name Rachel Abbott because I felt my own name was very much the name of a middle-aged housewife, which was a bit too true to, you know. So I, I wanted something that I thought was a bit more intriguing, really. 
And so, uh, and also, I was very nervous that if I published a book in my own name and it was complete garbage, everybody would <laughs> know. <some> confidence. <laughs> everybody would know. And then the daft thing is, of course, I then emailed everybody I knew mm. and told them to buy it. Yes. So, but um, in a way. I mentally separate the two. Rachel Abbott has been amazingly successful, but I'm still Sheila Rogers living in my house on Alderney and, mm. you know, going out and having a good time with my friends. And so, in a way, I sort of separate the two things out. There's Rachel Abbott, who's done great, and it's a huge surprise to me. Um, and it's a constant surprise. I certainly don't take it in my stride, and I certainly don't take it for, for granted ever. Each book, any writer will tell you this. Every single book that comes out, I'm terrified mm. that it's going to be a flop. When, when you look at one of your own books now, do, do you think this is a good book? Do, do you have that self-confidence or, or do you have the doubt still? Um, I think, I, I, if I'm honest, and I probably shouldn't say this because nobody will then buy the book, I think if I went back to the first book, I would probably go, hey, I still think it's a good story. I still think in many ways... You know, it's a very, very strong story and there's lots of, lots of different elements of it. But the writing, I'm sure, if I wrote it again, would be better. But I really do like the stories because I like the people mm. in my books. Um, I, like, I don't like all of the people in my books, it has mm. to be said, because there's some fairly unpleasant people mm -hmm. in some of my books. But I really get involved with those people and I really care about what happens to them yes and so yeah I really I do I do enjoy them but isn't that the the writer's journey that you wouldn't be getting better if you didn't look back at old books and say I can do better now yeah yeah I mean I, I don't go back and reread my books I am going to read reread Stranger Child because there's a character in Stranger Child that may very well come back in my next book and he's been kind of in my books, in the background all the way through. But he comes to the fore in Stranger Child. And I just want to remember, make mm. sure that I've got his character right. Yes. And, and his mode of speech, which I, it's three books ago, so I can't quite remember. I've, I've got the visual image, but I'm not sure that I've got his dialogue and his, his way of speech correct. So I need to go back and look at that again. You mentioned uh, Scrivener earlier. What yeah. tools make your life easier as an author? Scrivener certainly, as an author, um, I find immensely useful. And um, because you, because I, I give every scene and every chapter. So if you've not used Scrivener before, this won't make any sense. But you can you, you can have individual text items or you can have folders. So I have a folder for a chapter that's got individual text items that represent each of the scenes within the chapter. Mm. Sometimes there's only one, sometimes there's two. Very occasionally there are three. But I give them names. So I name each chapter and they, they're viewed down the left-hand side of the screen. I'm doing all these hand signals to show you what I'm talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nobody's I'll give an artist's impression afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so down the left-hand side of the screen, you see all the folders and all the um, text items, but they've got titles. So when I'm thinking, oh, what did I say at such and such a place? I can easily find it and see it. Um, and so you can go back to it very quickly, whereas in Word, you'd have to do quite a laborious search. Yes, yes. Um, also, I use keywords quite a lot, so there's a, an opportunity in Scrivener to to use keywords. So, for example, I mentioned the, the mobile phone earlier. Yes. If I've got a scene that's got an item in it that goes missing and then returns later, every scene in which that's mentioned, I can use the keyword mobile phone. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, I can just read the mobile phone scenes sequentially. So I can check that it hasn't 
rather randomly jumped from a house in Oxford to a house in London. No, that that's without, handy because mobile is, phones are devils, aren't they? Yeah, uh, they're, they're always yeah, devils. Yeah, they are. But anything like that, is you know, it charged? It's, is it charged? Yeah. Who's holding <laughs> absolutely, it? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, you know, things like if somebody's um, injected somebody with something lethal. What's happened to the syringe and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So you can use keywords like that. So that works really well. Um, so I use Scrivener, but also the same people that um, produce Scrivener, they have another piece of software called Scapple. And Scapple is almost, but not quite, like a flowcharting um, piece of mm. software. So back to my roots again. But you just create like little post-it notes. Um, and so, like for example, the book that I'm writing now, I suddenly, in the middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning, worked out how this book was going to end. Mm. <laughs> and the first thing I did was I got up, because I knew who'd done what, and obviously, but it's just those final scenes. And I got up and I wrote a note for every single scene that still had to be written. Um, and then they're all in any order I want. And then, I, as I then use um, Scrivener to write them, I then just kind of basically tick them off. That one's done, that one's done. And so that's really helpful because you can reorder them and make sure you're happy. And you can actually drag them into Scrivener, but that's unnecessary as far as I'm concerned. So I use those a lot for writing. Um, and they're the main two writing tools that I use. And obviously, uh, with the other thing with Scrivener, uh, I was going to say obviously the internet, but on Scrivener also, if you've done research, you could, there's a research section where you can add a web page yes. link. So I do a massive amount of research. I also have... Um, Advisor, so I have a police advisor, and for the book I'm writing at the moment, I've got a criminal lawyer writer. Uh, oh, sorry, advisor, and so I need somewhere to make sure I keep all of their information as well. So, so when I'm just trying to work out, um, you know, the the, the law about um, manslaughter versus murder. <laughs> It's very easy to find it. Yes. <laughs> I went to the Old Bailey yesterday. Oh, did you? I did. Oh, that was jolly good for me. Oh, fantastic. Well, it was a horrible... Actually, it was a very horrible case, which I won't talk about. Mm. But it was really interesting to see how it all worked. Did you sit, did you sit in yeah, the gallery? Yeah, in the gallery, yes, yeah. Yes, to watch, yes. Yeah. It was, it was good because everything that I've written in this book up to now, I've now got to rewrite. Oh, right. Because I've got this mental image of what it's like based on what you've seen on the television. Mm -hmm. And it's not like that at all. So, um, so I'm going to rewrite those. It's not much. It's just the angle that people can see people from. So I always had this vision of the person in the dock standing at the front facing the judge. Yes. And that the gallery is behind that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, it might be like that in some of the older courts in, uh, in the Old Bailey. But in the more modern courts, the gallery is up on one side and facing the jury and the dock's over the back and it's all behind glass and... Quite different. It's an interesting point because I'm just about in August. Um, we're using it as an excuse for my wife's birthday, but we're going to jump on a Caledonian sleeper because I've got scenes on a Caledonian sleeper in the ah. book that I'm writing at the moment. Ah, well, you see, you can offset that against. I, I, I know that's the other thing. Hey, listen, I've got I've got something coming up that I've written that takes place in Burma, so I've been already. Don't it's worry. A, well, I, I ended a series in Spain which when my kids leave is where I hope to be going. So I, that'll be my winter research project for the, <laughs> that I'll offset against tax. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an important point, isn't it? You, you, you can you actually can. do yes. that, can't you? you? So can. my half of the train fare is going through the business. I have to say that I've not done it very much and I don't know why I've not done it very much because mm. um, it just never occurs to me. But I'm going to India later this year and, and 
because of the way this book starts, as I say, some of it will be in Burma or Myanmar as it now is, um, but some of it will be in India. And I'd never thought for a minute that I could actually charge any of that to the company. I'll see what the accountants say. They might say, hmm, I think you're stretching this a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you write a scene. It'll be, it'll be fine in a bestseller. It'll be no problem with the tax run. <laughs> but it's worth making that point to people who don't know you could do that. Yes. You need to be claiming this. It is a business. And you if, need to if, be claiming if that's, this stuff. Yeah, if, that's, if that mm. is genuinely... Mm. Um, something that um, I do know some writers and I certainly wouldn't dream of naming names but I do know some writers who actually think where they want to go and then actually work out a plot that will um, accommodate that trip but I'm, I'm not that's not really my way of doing things I want to come up with a plot because I really like the idea of the plot and it was only in the middle of the night last night when I was thinking about our trip to India that I thought, oh, that would be a great place to set this part of the scene. And I didn't do it because we're going there, because it just yeah. suddenly occurred to me that that would actually make a lot of things tie together yeah. that up to now haven't done. So, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you can take that <laughs> but I mean, what I think the point we were making about the old Bailey is that actually your writing uh, is better if you've experienced it yes. yourself. That you, you see, in the kind of sleeper, I can go online and do a three sixty tour of a cabin, but I probably can't feel the the the, the, the lack of space in that cabin or no. how difficult it is to get on a bunk bed unless I've done it myself. Yeah, I will. I was sitting there and I was sitting outside waiting to go in. And, and in my book at the moment, I've got that somebody rushes out in distress out of the, from the gallery. Well, for start, you're only supposed to, you're supposed to be in there for 30 minutes before you come, before you run out. But she ran out and somebody else ran out following her and then went and sat down with her to have a, to talk to her. But there's signs everywhere saying, do not discuss this case in public areas. Yes, yes. And I'd Contempt not, of court. Yeah, mm. and I'd not actually thought about that. And then she says, come on, let's get a cup of tea. Because I've read that these places have got cafes, but the cafes are nowhere near mm. the, where you go into the gallery. Yes. So, and also I was thinking, I wonder what it smells like. You know, has it got a smell of its own? And it hasn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't have any smell at all. But it's so. scary too, isn't it? For people who've not been involved in the legal system, it's actually quite um, scary and intimidating to be in those environments, yes. I think, too. And, and you see it on telly like everybody does it every day, but actually you don't. I know. And the, one of the things that really got to me yesterday was I went to ask about going into the, the old courts, um, one, two, three, and four. And they said, the only, the only trial we've got on here at the moment is a fraud trial. And I thought, well, that's probably not going to be my kind of thing. Um, but as I turned to leave, the security guy said, oh, you need to stay here a second, because the big van, the big white yes. van, arrived yes. with the small windows that are all blacked out. Well, they're yeah. not blacked out, but they're, you can't see in through them. And the, the shutter went up. And whoever was in that van was being driven down into the bowels of the old Bailey. Yeah. And I thought, how awful must that feel for mm. the person that's... And I thought, oh, that has got to be in the book. Because you might be innocent. Yes, absolutely. Still might be innocent. You might be innocent and you're being driven down into the, the bowels of the earth like mm. that. And then you're sitting in... The, the woman, there was a woman in the box yesterday, sitting there, listening to these people talk about what they believe she's done and everybody else is sitting around listening and she's obviously said she's not guilty otherwise she wouldn't be in court. So she might not be guilty and yet she's having to listen to these awful things with all these people in a gallery watching the jury, some of whom looked like they were going to fall asleep. But that's, you know, that's got to come <laughs> so, into so the story. reassuring, isn't yeah. it? It's your case. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just this, when I saw this big van, which I knew had at least one prisoner, if not mm. more, because it was big, driving down into the bowels of the earth 
where it was there was no it was just like going into an underground car park and I just thought that must be the worst feeling in the world yes and you can only you've got to see that to yeah. write it haven't yes you, I think. yeah it just made me shiver mm. made me shiver and I right that's going in the book and on that point and we'll talk about the um, benefits of events that like we're attending today I was here last year it was a crime event I can't remember the title of it and I, I sat in one of the sessions with a, um, a prison chaplain a prison governor and, and one of the guards and I remember asking um, what if a guy like me ends up in jail you know has no no skirmishes at all barely even with the police you know maybe somebody broke into my car and nicked a radio once that's it you know what's it like what's it like for a regular guy to be in prison and they said well actually uh, um, it was fascinating talk because where do you get that information from if you don't yeah, talk to the people yeah. who do it and they, they were just saying well actually we're seeing more guys like you in jail because it's white collar crime and um, people are times of hard austerity people are fiddling books and yeah. selling secrets and things like that and, and more guys like you are in there but uh, they have to watch people but you you, you get that information by immersing yourself well in I, I do I do prison talks so I, yeah wow. so the, mm. the book that I'm writing now um, came about as a result of a visit to a women's prison I've done a man's prison and a woman's prison and I've said to my publicist get me more I'm mm. very happy to do more because mm. um, I think there's a lot of the people that, that I've seen are people who desperately want to read mm. um, libraries generally are underfunded as we know, and prison libraries are even more underfunded than anybody else. Mm. So their book club, they have a book club, and of course there's only one copy of the book in the library, so they have to read it and pass it around to the next person. So it can be eight weeks before eight people have actually read the book that they want to talk about. So we always take a load of books to give out to them and stuff. Um, But, you know, a lot of these people are just, as the governor said to me, actually, when I came out of the women's prison, well, I just look at them and think they're but for the grace of God, yeah. because um, some of the some of them were in there because they'd been very badly abused and had taken revenge. Yes. Um, so um, revenge is murder. If it's revenge, it's murder. Mm. If it's loss of control, it's not. It's manslaughter. But we won't go into all that detail <laughs> now. Um, but anyway, so you know, there's there's kind of. Um, there are people in there who've maybe some of them look like they'd always always lived on very very hard times Mm -hmm. and possibly had a handful of kids that they had to feed and so they've done something they shouldn't do to feed Mm -hmm. those kids and so you know they've made mistakes and there was there was one particular woman who looked like somebody I'd go to the pub with you Mm -hmm. know looked just like somebody who would be um, a friend under any other circumstances and I asked whether anybody had ever had a Kindle because they're not allowed to take them in there because of their they can get online with them so and she said I'd never seen one because by the time when I came in here they hadn't even come out and I thought God you've been in a bit then and obviously the governor couldn't tell me what she'd done but she did say that several of the people in there were lifers and so I assume she had to be one of them because she had to have been in for a few years and and she just looked you just wonder what on earth occurred in that poor woman's life Mm. that she had to do something I always think women are innocent, you see. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I think, that, I think they usually have a different tale to tell, most of them, don't they? Yes. It's usually as a consequence of something that a man's done mm. in their life, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, but that's usually the tale, mm. isn't it? That's usually the sad tale. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, I've, obviously I do quite a lot of research into these things, and um, the research I've been reading recently shows that in the UK there are nine um, deaths each month that are um, caused by relationships. So... Mm seven women and two men are killed 
think it's every month. Wow. Every month by a partner or an ex-partner. You mentioned there that you bring books for reading groups. And one of the things I noticed when I was researching you today is that you, you, have, you make a big deal about reading groups. You have uh, notes for reading groups, which is a fantastic resource. Uh, how, do, how does that go for you? Do you get feedback about that? It's a lovely idea. Do you know, I don't. Um, so I do get quite a lot of book clubs contacting me and saying, you know, I'd love you to come to my book club, which is lovely, and it's so nice of people to suggest it, but it's quite difficult for me to justify going to, I don't know, um, somewhere in Wales for a two-hour book club meeting, yes. much as I would love to. Um, it's going to be it's quite difficult. Um, and no, I don't actually get much feedback on that, and uh, makes me wonder whether it's worth doing, but I do quite like doing it. Um, I've not done the ones for the sixth window yet, which is one of my big things that is sitting at the back of my mind that I've got to do. But it, it's quite difficult to write questions that don't give away too much about the story. Yes, I saw so the, the spoilers take, notes yes, at the top yes. there. Yes. So it's always quite difficult. But I do like writing them um, because I think it's it's interesting for people. Because I'm in a book club, and you know, we quite often the questions that we ask each other are, are daft. Really, it's kind of <laughs> well. I thought he was. I thought he was a bit weak, and I thought, you know, and you, there's not really the level of discussion. Whereas, if you do have those discussion notes, then it can raise some really interesting points. I think so. Yes, I will do the six window notes. You're still working uh, so hard. The fact that you're in Newcastle today, which has been involved, <laughs> and you were in the uh, the old Bailey yesterday, you've done a lot of travelling. I was yeah. I was in London for a couple of events, and then I went um, on. What day is it today? Saturday? Uh, Saturday yes, Saturday, Saturday. Yes. I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> so I was in London for a couple of events on Thursday and then uh, went to the Old Bailey yesterday morning and then came up here to Newcastle. Will you be letting up or is your plan for the future to just keep this pace up? In terms of visits, I love doing it and uh, Maura, my publicist, is just um, amazing and she finds me all these opportunities to go and chat to people. So I love it. It's great. It's really nice to meet readers. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. I do hope you have a great session here in Newcastle. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.